This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Jay Jeffers, it's good to see you. Hey, Dan, good to see you too. Welcome to everybody in the Sophia audience. Um, I, I'm here with Jay Jeffers to talk, uh, have a really interesting uh, pop culture conversation. Um, Jay, since you're new to the audience, though not new to me, um, would you just say a few words uh, about yourself, who you are, what you do, how we know each other? <laughs> sure, absolutely. So I am a, a bit of a philosophy buff. I, I studied it in college, loved it. I've uh, done some writing online to that effect. Uh, I think our mutual interest in this area is how we originally crossed paths online and on social media. Uh, and I think for the purposes of this conversation, Dan, I think my uh, main qualification is that, like you, I have the uh, lived experience of being a real Gen Xer. We were there. <laughs> That's right. We were there when it happened. What do you do actually do for a living? I mean, I know. So the, when you said about writing online on philosophy, you're talking, I assume you're talking about the work you've done at Partially Examined Life. Right. So the which I'm going to link to, which I'm going to link to below the the doc, right. so you, people can see what you've done. But what do you so do? Partially Examined Life is a uh, philosophy blog and podcast that, similar to Sophia, starts from a philosophical base and branches out and uh, covers politics or cultural matters generally. Um, so uh, I've also been a long time consumer of Sophia's content. So I'm excited to be here uh, to talk with you today. But um, yeah, I'm in the mortgage industry in the Dallas area, uh, sort of a hobbyist philosophy buff. So did we actually meet first in the blogging heads comments? I think that's probably true. The The comment section back at Blogging Heads and then you uh, sort of got the Sophia program uh, established at Blogging Heads, which was a mainstay for me to keep returning uh, for. So, uh, yeah, I think we we're commenting on, you know, all the, yeah. the dialogues as they refer to it over there. And then it, it sort of grew from there. And then we started following each other on Twitter and that's where we, we talked quite a bit now um right. and um so jay actually i don't even remember how this happened maybe you posted something on twitter and i replied to it i know i know at one point i said we should do a dialogue on this but how do, so our topic is going to be mtv the original mtv you wanted to say a, a word about how we got how we decided to talk about this sure so uh you know it was sort of apropos of nothing just out of nowhere, every now and again, I'll uh, post a, you know, a, a YouTube video on Twitter. And uh, this time it was uh, a video from the Cars, one of my favorite tracks of theirs, Since You're Gone. And uh, I think you chimed in and, uh, you know, talked about how you missed the old MTV and I hear your brother. And you know, we started talking about how we, you know, our memories of being kids watching MTV and so forth. And um you know, it seems um, serendipitous that in the course of that conversation, you know, we um, discovered that, you know, actually the, the 40th anniversary of MTV is August 1st in a few, the launch of MTV, at least the first video is August 1st, you know, in a few days. So the, the month of August um, is the 40th anniversary, which is pretty cool. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and just to clarify, so um, we are going to be talking about MTV in its original incarnation. Um, how long would you say it last? I, I, I was going to my my rough working notion is that it's an, an original incarnation existed pretty much up until the point in which they began to air their uh, reality TV programming, starting with the real world. Um, and that then at that point was when the model began to shift and eventually would completely shift over into a different model. Do you have a similar notion that that sort of represents the span of the original iteration of the channel? Yeah, I think that's right. Especially in hindsight, it's more even more crystallized, you know, the way that we can say it now. I remember at the time, at some point after the real world, somewhere in the mid 90s, people would joke that, you know, MTV doesn't play music. Right. You know, that's when so, the joke about there are no videos and on, on music video television started right. was was when those reality shows became the, the most watched and increased in number and um um so I, i'm just going to take that as a working as a working definition it doesn't really matter but um we're going to talk about the iteration of it when it was entirely uh, a music channel and the non-video programming was still programming about music right and about the music industry and maybe a little yeah. bit crossover into pop culture so television and film as well um, one last thing, just by way of clarification, is that while we're both Gen Xers, we are uh, different in age. So I was born in 68, which means that for me, MTV was a feature of my junior high school and high school experience. Whereas for Jay, if I'm correct, um, you, you started watching MTV as a kid, right? Around 10 or 11, was it? That's right. It, it may have even been nine. Um, I was born in 74, so I was really, you know, it's funny because my first, first love musically was the band Kiss. That's, Me too. Really? Oh my God. So how, oh my gosh. So how did you start with Kiss? You know, I really don't know how I got, ever got a hold of a Kiss record. I, I, I should probably look into that, but all I know is, is I had a Fisher Price record player and, you know, I had these Kiss records and I had the Kiss album cover which is obviously incredibly captivating for, for a kid, you know, and uh, you're talking you know, about that first album, you know, you're what I'm, not, the, which I'm not even sure. I just know the, the tongue and the makeup. Yeah. 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 You know, the whole thing. And uh, I loved kiss, but it, it wasn't a uh, kiss. Um, wasn't really a part of my MTV um, initiation. You know um, I think the gravitational pull of Michael Jackson and the release of Thriller sort of got me in. And of course that was almost all I cared about of it. In hindsight, I actually think I remember more about, you know, the everything else that was going on, all the other videos I had to sit through waiting for Thriller and so forth. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about Thriller in, in a minute because I know that that sort of was your entry point. I just want to say one thing about Kiss because it's such a wonderful coincidence. Um, so I, I got into Kiss. Kiss was the first rock band I ever got into. And it was young. I was eight years old. And the way, and, and people have to remember, so eight years old for me, that's 1976. Kiss then was still quite an edgy band. This was before they had turned into almost like a comic book group, right? I mean, they were, people's parents were not happy 
that they that their kids were listening to Kiss. The mu- the music was very sexually inflected. The performance right. was very sexually inflected. The music style was kind of dirty and rough. Um, and I actually got introduced to Kiss by a friend of mine in my third grade class who was like the delinquent. <laughs> and um, so the fact that I was hanging out with him already was a source of concern for the, for the adults in my life. And then the fact that I got into kiss and I remember it was kiss alive. It was the first kiss alive album that really just blew everything up. It is of course, one of the greatest live albums ever recorded. And um, everyone at the time agreed that all the performances of the songs, they are far better than they are on the records. And I became such a Kiss fanatic. I would dress up as Kiss. I would raid my mother's like stockings and makeup and stuff and dress up as Kiss and like appear in my parents' living room. Sometimes when company was over, put the record on and like air guitar and lip sync to Kiss songs. I mean, it's mortifying to think of. Um, but everybody, of course, thought it was adorable. And then it, I was such a fanatic that my poor father, I bugged the shit out of my poor father until he finally bought tickets. The first concert I ever saw was Kiss on the Rock and Roll Over Tour in 1977 at Nassau Coliseum. And my poor father had to take me to it. And I remember at the time I was scared to death. I held his hand throughout the entire concert, like clutched at it. The entire place reeked of marijuana. Everybody was way older than me and looked scary as hell. And it was just such such the quintessential first col- first concert experience for a kid. I was so grateful to my father that all these years later, I paid it forward. My and I took my daughter to her first first concert to see Fallout Boy. Uh, in Tulsa when she was like 10 years old or something. And um, and it also reeked of marijuana because Wiz Khalifa was the Wiz Khalifa was the opener. And it was just such a deja vu moment. I was just like, oh my God, you know, if I have any chance of getting to heaven at all, I've just accomplished it today. So um <laughs> but that's so funny. You know, um speaking of the makeup i didn't really you know i was a little younger than you so i was a little less capable of applying the makeup but i know i was getting um you know my uncle was babysitting me while my mom was at work and i i just got a magic marker and i just sort of wrote all over myself wrote on and for some reason i i think this was so i was much younger than this was way before the mtv era um at least from the perspective of a child's years you know um, and, uh, I told my uncle, I said, don't, you know, don't tell my mom that I've done this as if, as if there's a chance that it's not obvious. Right. Since you we can't the- the- <laughs> right. And we were sitting at the dinner table and my mom said, uh, you know, did you, did you, did you mark on yourself? <laughs> and I, admit, I, I looked over my uncle, like, and he don't said, say anything. Don't say anything. <laughs> no, you know. Anyway, I had to go in the bathroom and scrub for 30 minutes or something, you know. But yeah, no, Kiss was my first love. But uh, I don't recall them being, um, you know, really uh, important in the development of MTV, although you would think they were. No, would no, be. no, they weren't. And look, here's why. I don't know if you remember, but by the time MTV comes on, Kiss is getting into its no makeup phase. Uh, and essentially right. they become a hair metal band for a few years. Right. So if you, you probably remember, lick it up the video for lick it up. Um, and there were a number of others where basically they kind of took adopted the hair metal persona for a while and did have a lot of hits, 
Right. But by that time I was past kiss by that time, I was already into more, more real metal um, yeah. and kiss at that point. And I wasn't really into hair metal. Then I only got, I only sort of retroactively liked hair metal later. Um, but at the time that MTV was posting, um, the metal on MTV that I was into was not the hair metal. It was the much darker underground stuff that was being shown late at night and later on when Headbangers Ball. Uh, uh, but I was listening to Sabbath and Priest. And there were a few big Priest videos on MTV, like You Got Another Thing Coming um, um, and a few others um, um, uh, from Screaming for Vengeance and some of the really popular uh, albums. Um, and there, I remember there also being some Iron Maiden videos early on, uh, on MTV. So you could, you, it, there was real metal on MTV and that's what I was more interested in. Um, I only got into hair metal sort of retroactively when I got to the age in which I started caring about what girls thought about me. And you could be a metalhead if metal meant Motley Crue and get girls, but you could not be a metalhead as in Iron Maiden and get girls. And so I kind of very um, cynically and just yeah, just sort of switched my whole mo. Um, but we could talk we could talk about that as as we go on. Um, why don't we talk about we were going to talk about first about our own personal experience. So why don't you? And I know Thriller was at the heart of yours. And so why don't you first talk about? how you got into MTV, how you started MTV, what was involved, you know, was it at your house? Were you watching at somebody else's house? Did you have to beg your parents for permission? Just tell us your little tale with it. Right, so uh, so I think I was um, around nine when Thriller the video, sort of the chatter around this started. In hindsight, I now realize that that album was released one year prior and the video was an attempt to sort of you know, re-spark sales, but... Had the Beat It video already come out? Um, yeah, was... I don't... I think Beat It, also Billie Jean. I think any any video that was, um, you know, uh, key on the Thriller album, I, I, I had the the impression that, that those were out before Thriller, that Thriller was the crescendo. Yeah, yeah, because because Beat It was, I recall, very popular and was in heavy rotation. So were you aware of the other Michael Jackson videos from that record or was Thriller the thing that brought you into it? So I was aware of it in the sense that, um, you know, this was the time when normal people started to become aware that there were several like hyper specialized television cable channels. And so, you know, you had HBO, ESPN. I think Ted Turner was probably messing around with this TBS thing back then. And then, and then MTV. And I remember sort of the adults in my life commenting, there are channels just for sports as, you know, just a frivolous idea, yeah. you know, but in any case, it's something you can indulge in. And MTV was sort of along those lines as well. So I was aware of it. I watched Billie Jean. I liked Michael Jackson as a young kid. I knew of all that, but my sort of um, immersion or baptism, as you you know, if you will, was related to the release of Thriller because, um, in my memory, they they didn't tell you they told you the day that Thriller would be released, but they didn't announce the time. Now, you know, I was nine years old. This is a long time ago. I've tried to confirm this through research. Uh, I'm not sure if it holds up, but I do have the distinct memory that they would come through every once in a while and then MTV VJs would say, 
Don't forget, coming up today, the thriller, Michael Jackson. Now, what I know now is they released it at midnight, but I wouldn't have been awake at midnight at that age. And so the next day, my old, I had an older sister. She knew about this. Uh, my mom was a sort of responsible, but also liberal parent, you know, sort of um, caught between those sensibilities. And um, I remember knowing Thriller was going to come out. Maybe I just missed the exact announcement, but they would just come through and say, we're going to play Thriller in the afternoon. We're going to play Thriller at night which is a smart marketing strategy if you want someone to watch your channel all day long, you know, waiting for Thriller, uh, which is exactly what uh, I wanted to do. So I had to get special permission from my mom, not just to watch Thriller, but to watch MTV for the entire day. <laughs> because, you know, if I didn't, then, it, you know, it's possible that I was going to miss. You might miss Thriller. I might miss Thriller and then it's going to be, you know, tomorrow and then this is going to be like ruin my life or something. And so I remember like really lobbying my mom, you know, who had some reservations about letting me watch MTV, you know, for hours on end, which is probably a wise intuition on, on her part. But in any case, she also didn't want to deny me the experience of you know seeing the premiere of thriller on or at least on the first full day and so eventually she she gave in and i remember sitting down in our den we did have cable and uh, i don't think we had hbo i think that's what i had to go to friends houses for but we did have mtv and so i just sat down there all day long on pins and needles you know waiting on the release of thriller Somebody probably could have told me, you know, hey, man, they're not going to release Thriller at 1.30 in the afternoon. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's probably going to be like a more primetime spot, but I've been like, I can't take any risks here. And I just remember sort of imbibing all those videos that I watched all the way up until Thriller, which I had never really, uh, you know, sort of immersed myself in MTV like that. So, you know, uh, the, the songs and videos that come to mind from that day are, uh, of course, anything Duran Duran, which was, you know, fairly racy for, for the time. Um, you've got 99 Red Balloons, you know, you've got uh, ZZ Top, Men at Work, you know, you've got Devo's Whip It, you know, you've got all these videos. And I do think that, you know, it was really striking for uh, a nine-year-old to watch all those videos. First of all, because there's a lot of eye candy that I, I, you know, I might not have been exposed to yet, but also, you know, the videos like Michael Jackson really upped the game in terms of production value in his videos. And then eventually you got to the point where you know, the videos are professionally produced and, you know, there's some dividing line perhaps before Michael Jackson where the artists are just winging it themselves, you know, and I think Devo is a good example with Whip It. I, I think someone said they went, you know, to the store and got some V-neck sweaters and cut off the arms and raised the V-necks over their faces and the, you know, it was just like nothing you had ever seen, you know, so... It's funny because in hindsight, I think that probably formed my sensibility more than Thriller itself. So you had, you had an, how much older was, than you is your sister? 
My sister is seven years older than me. So was she a huge musical influence? Because a lot of times, see, I'm an only child, but I know just from all my friends that it's their older siblings that got them into all the good music. Was it the same with you? I think it was, you know, my sister was, um, you know, what's interesting uh, is a lot of people say, you know, when you, when you see YouTube videos, like the one I posted on Twitter that got us to talking uh, from the cars, people will comment in YouTube. That's just back when music was good, you know, and it's, and it's true, but it's not that music is necessarily worse now. It's just that you have to try, you have to put a little effort forth to find it. Whereas back then you just turn on the radio, turn on TV, you're listening to Prince, Fleetwood Mac, you know, or what have you. Yeah, yeah. There are bands like that that are just as good now, but you know, it's, it's just not a part of, you know, the ambience of the, yeah. you know, the world. Yeah. And so my sister was into, um, you know, uh, Joe Jackson, you know, stepping out, you know, Duran Duran, you know, all the, the, the music that you could just hear on the radio, which was, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of like a pop version of new wave. She's, so she's about my age. So, I mean, okay. she must've been into seventies rock too. Right. I mean, I mean, um, um, I know that as a kid, because, you know, I was a kid in the seventies and that was the FM era. Right. I mean, that was when you had these amazing radio stations with these legendary uh, DJs. And, um, so I had a huge 70s and by extension 60s musical education before MTV ever got on the air. Um, and a lot of these bands that became huge on MTV were already major bands. You know, the police were already a major band before before MTV um, um, uh, and 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 others that I can that I that I could that I could think of and mention. And so. Um, did you come to MTV already with a kind of a musical education behind you or were you still young enough that your sister was a little too old to get you into the music of the seventies? Yeah. And I think, I'm sure we would laugh about this now, but I, I think my sister at the time was sort of a, um, for lack of a better term, maybe a, uh, a preppy Valley girl accent type person who would not which of course we're talking the valley we're talking about southern california but that accent took over the entire suburban yep. country um and so my sister would not have been i mean of course she knew all of the you know um bad company songs or, or what have you and there was a station uh you know where we grew up in little rock arkansas that was devoted just to that but you know i think she would probably have been more into at least in my memory from the time, like, you know, the Go-Go's or something like that. And in terms of my musical education um, from older people or my parents, this is just like going on car trips to see the grandparents, you know, like I remember, you know, uh, I remember Fleetwood Mac, you know, in particular a lot. Um, and so my older sister, it's funny because you know, I don't even know if she's as attached to this whole, uh, the aesthetic of this or the nostalgia of this particular time period as I was because she was older, um, which is also, which is interesting because as I got older, I'm not nearly as attached to grunge, which is what I experienced at the age that she was in the, you know, the, the yeah. 80s. Because yeah. uh, so I guess maybe somewhere in that 
late elementary, early middle school, uh, you know, time period, there's a real opening to sort of make some imprints on your brain, you know? So my, my experience with MTV, so MTV launches in 81 by 81, I'm 13. And, um, so I'm in my second year of junior high school and, um, so MTV really was a feature of my high school, my adolescent experience. Um, I did come to it already with a very, very pretty substantially established musical taste just from listening to the radio in the seventies and being educated by my, my friends, older siblings, um, you know, you'd go over to their house and their cool older brother was playing Zeppelin or was playing yes, or was playing Pink Floyd or was playing, um, you know, stuff like that. And so, you know, by the time I got to MTV, I already had a pretty well-established musical sensibility. Um, and it always was a relatively broad one. I never was very exclusionary. So, you know, yeah, I loved metal, but that didn't mean that I didn't like punk also. I liked both metal and punk. That didn't mean that I didn't like any disco, right? You know, I wasn't the guy out there burning disco records, you know, and, and I just, I always kind of liked a lot of different things. I certainly went through phases where I would be more into one thing than into another. Right. Probably when MTV was hitting, um, funnily enough, the farthest thing from it, I was probably was most into was, was progressive rock. Like yes. And King Crimson and Emerson Lake and Palmer and stuff like that, which it may be hard to imagine, but actually received quite a lot of radio play in the seventies. You'd hear car, you'd hear welcome back by our friends of the show that never ends constantly despite the fact that it would be unheard of to hear something like that on a radio station, on a mainstream radio station today. First of all, the songs are too long or too complicated. They require far too much aesthetic sophistication and taste to just enjoy if you're, you know, a normal blockheaded idiot. And so, you know, um, so if anything, I should have been not receptive at all to MTV. But again, my tastes were always really eclectic. Here's the thing, though. And I'm glad you mentioned this. MTV very much represents not just the beginning of music of, of what it did, but it, it was the beginning of cable, right? I mean, it was I mean, cable TV, people forget, only goes back to like, I think, you know, the late 70s, right? And you only, you know, you had a few flood, you know, you had CNN, you had, you know, you had um, MTV, you had HBO, ESPN, but there really wasn't that much. And a lot of people didn't have it. So my household, we did not have cable. My parents are older than most people uh, my age. My, my, my parents are silent generation. My father was born in 1928. Uh. And so they were so completely alienated from American pop culture and they're immigrants on top of it, right? They didn't come to the United States until the 50s. So they have no America in them. And I'm being raised, you know, and so everything that I got pop culturally, I got from friends and their, their cool older, older siblings and from the radio, I got nothing from my parents. Um, you know, when we drove in the car, they weren't listening to music, right? I mean, you know what I mean? They just weren't. I mean, it just, it, they, they might be listening to the PBS station. Um, maybe there was some classical music playing, but they were not listening to, you know, the radio. There were so no contemporary they, records. They didn't, my parents didn't have Beatles records or I had to find that stuff myself. Um, we did not have cable. And had I been as young as you, I wouldn't have been allowed to watch MTV because the only thing I was 
allowed to watch as a child was PBS. My parents, I don't know any of the classic cartoons because my parents wouldn't let me watch it because they just viewed it. It's a similar reason to why they didn't let me drink soda as a child. They just considered it garbage. Garbage in, you get garbage kid. You get stupid kid is what you get is the way they thought about it, right? So no, you're not watching imbecile cartoons. You're not drinking a bunch of sugary soda and you're not eating garbage, not while you're a child. Now, once I was an adolescent, everything changed and I was, I was much freer to do what I like. But I didn't have this background in pop culture other than what I heard on the radio and what I got at my friend's houses. So when MTV first came out, we did not have cable. And so my entire experience of MTV was watching it at my friend's houses. At my house, there was something else. And that was something called Friday night videos. Every Friday night, there was a block, especially I think it was a late night block that was just devoted to all the new MTV videos that were trending and that were out. And that was shown on local affiliates, on local network affiliates. And so the way I got videos was I was either watching Friday night videos at home late at night, or I was at friends' houses and I was watching videos. Um, And I do remember those early years at MTV really being quite remarkable. And I don't know if you remember this the same way. You were a child, so it's a little different than adolescence. Adolescents are much more socially intense with each other. But it completely, um, it had an enormous influence just on every aspect of our social lives. It had enormous influence on our clothes. It had enormous, I mean, I can remember when the, the first Madonna Lucky Star video came out. And it's not literally a day. The next day I go to school and half the girls are dressed like Madonna. Wow. You know what I mean? It's not an exaggeration. And um, um it had just this enormous effect. It also intersected with television shows like Miami. A lot of the TV shows, especially Miami Vice, began to incorporate music video techniques and actual music video sections. In the Miami Vice pilot, there is an entire video montage section, very atmospheric, that's got Phil Collins in the air tonight playing tonight behind it. That's an iconic scene now. I mean, you go on YouTube, there's clips of it, a thousand, you know, with millions of people views on it. Um, So television and music, I mean, television series and music, television and film and all this stuff kind of intersected, right? A lot of these songs were in major movies like John Hughes movies, right? Don't you forget about me. The Simple Minds is from Breakfast Club. And the video is clips from Breakfast Club. So there was all this cross-pollination and the result of which was for an adolescent, this was the defining aesthetic pop cultural sort of vector, right? MTV, film, and TV shows. And they all came together to create an aesthetic, a sensibility that had, it was hugely influential on everyone, right? It wasn't niche. And I think that's one of the big differences now is one of the things maybe we'll talk about later is that um, I think this was the last era in which there was anything that that you could call a national unifying youth culture. And it was a good part because of MTV, in my view. But anyway, I've been going on way too long. So that's my personal entry point was we didn't have cable. I came already with a musical sensibility, but pretty open-minded. And I got MTV at other people's houses. I got it, you know, 
through their siblings and and their and them. And then I also got it on this funny Friday night videos thing where they would recycle the MTV videos for all the poor jerks like me who didn't have cable. Right. So, um, so you said that when you got to be, um, you know, at the age of adolescence, you had a lot more freedom. Well, we still didn't get cable. You still didn't get but cable. But I was allowed to go to other My parents were not trying to stop me from spending five hours at somebody's house, the entirety of which we were spending watching MTV. Right. Did, now, did they know that you were doing that? Yeah. And they, they, they loosened up on other things too, like the soda and, and all. Okay. In other words, they really only were that strict when I was a child. Um, they, they, they took very seriously the adolescent transition, you know, and for and being Jewish, it had a very official marking. I had a bar mitzvah. The bar mitzvah was done in another in Israel where my father had been bar mitzvah, the same spot where my father had been bar mitzvah. And it, so it was this whole sort of my, my entering into adolescence was sort of marked. And my parents did treat me very differently as an adolescent. And I guess that's also part of being this sort of old fashioned. Right. The kids really are kids, but then the adolescents really are not kids. Right? I mean, across the line and, <laughs> right. Right. So I don't know um, how I think my mom was probably not thrilled with some of the MTV content. Yeah. But also, um, you know, just trying to pick her battles. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, was it because of the, the sexual content? I think so. I think so. Um and I don't know that she, I mean, I think she was aware, this was a new thing. Um, what's funny is I could watch even, even more things at my dad's house. Um, my parents split well, when parents I was, were divorced. Right. So at a, um, you know, they, they split when I was at a young age. I and your I mom watch, was stricter than your dad about these sorts of things. I mean, my mom was like, you know, uh, yeah. So I was, I could have watched Charles Bronson at my dad's house, you know, but <laughs> So, but, so my mom raised me very conservatively in that sense, but she was also, she didn't want to be a prude. She wanted me to be exposed to culture. And of course I was absolutely relentless about this thriller release, you know, yeah. but, but by, but after that day, it was just all gravy. You know, MTV was just, you know, the, the background of every, you know, everyone's culture by then. Right. Right. So um, maybe we'll talk a little, let's talk a little bit about, um, sort of more objectively about it sort of our impressions of what of what the impact of, of what the of what this this represented what this was um because you and i had interestingly diff somewhat somewhat different perceptions of it um to me it represented the last version of something that had pretty much existed since the 60s your impression was that it was the beginning of something new and maybe we could contrast those two things so in what sense, from your perspective, did it seem like something new? Okay, or the so, beginning of something rather than the end of something, I guess, is what I'm right. So, um, you know, just phenomenologically, just the, the raw subjective experience of the 80s was very, you know, sort of the introduction of this digital sounds and, you know, sort of futuristic landscapes. Um, it's not that no one had imagined these before, but it was, it seemed like the first time they could really, um, you know, manifest them in, in some kind of coherent presentation of like a video, you know, so um, I feel like, um, you know, was it sort of like electronica music? I'm sure there was some 
somebody you working do, you on do that. know that goes all the way back to craft work right i mean that's that's that goes way back into the 70s um tangerine yeah. dream all of that but not hugely mainstream it's exactly. niche it's that's, niche that's, it's niche yeah right that's the key i only know that in hindsight yeah now um i was about to say there was like prob- human league and all those bands they're just channeling craft work I mean, Kraftwerk was hugely and huge on all those. But you're right. Nobody but connoisseurs knew who the hell Kraftwerk were, right? Exactly. (laughs) Everyone knew who Human League was, right? Everyone. Right. So when when Kraftwerk's influence scaled, it was the early 80s. Yeah, you're right. And um, I feel like aesthetically, that feels like we're still in the wake of that, or that's a beginning now, not everything has to start and finish on the same vector, but I've only ever typically thought of it as the 80s sort of introducing this. And it, we're even sort of less self-conscious about this computerized sound now. You see MTV is starting the process that now has gotten us to pop music where every single voice is auto-tuned and sounds like a robot. Exactly. Okay. Where, Interesting. Where this is a novelty. It was a novelty then. Um, and, 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 you know, the contemporary phenomenon you just cited, I don't have as much regard for as the people that were doing it, you know, um, in the early 80s, it was it was fresh, and it was new. And um, I also remember, I don't know if um, you have an impression on this, but it seems like in the early 80s, like with the 1984 Olympics, the, the, um, the screen quality of color television took a big jump and it made the 80s seem vivid to me at the time and it that's only continued and when you look at you know footage from the 60s and 70s you know or I think a lot of people's impressions are colored by the fact that the footage is a little more drab you know so just in terms of the aesthetics and the you know the 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 sounds and the sights I've always seen the 80s as sort of like a line that started that we're still on. So to hear you say that it was the last of something was, uh, you know, it piqued my interest. Well, so let me ask you just about this. I mean, and these are, look, these are not things that one has arguments about, but let me just ask you a few things about this. So, I mean, certainly the color palette of the eighties compared to the color palette of the seventies is bright and vibrant and very much, you know, neon electric i mean this really sort of you know very high intensity very high contrast vibrant color but by the time you get to the 90s it all goes mute and depressed again i mean in other words it's not like starting from the 80s on we've had vibrant colors right i mean i mean i would say that most of the period from the 80s until now has been dominated by again backed by earth tones and grays and browns and I mean, the entire 90s to me is a gray, depressed, heroin chic sort of color color palette. It's one of the reasons why I hated it so much. I'm like, why did we go from fun to dismal and depressing just when everything got great, when the Cold War ended, when the economy boomed, when now we've decided to all be miserable, depressed? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I understand being miserable, depressed in 1973 during the gas embargo and in the middle of the Cold War and, and Nixon and all this, but dismal and depressed during Clinton? 
doesn't make any sense, right? I didn't understand it at all. It actually was when I started wondering whether my generation had a bit of a screw miss, screw loose. Um, um, I didn't understand the whole aesthetic of grunge. I mean, you know, I understood why four wretched people in, in Seattle, where it's never sunny, were miserable and depressed. I didn't understand why the rest of the country thought this was so great. Um, I did not see why this was an improvement. Um, um, but so, I mean, it's interesting to me that you view this MTV as starting this sort of break from the 70s. And then from then on, we kind of had this this bright technological neon But I just remember it lasting a very short time. And then we were right back in the dismal again. Yeah, so um, that's definitely what happened immediately after the 80s. There's, I can't deny that. Um, I do think that we've lightened up since then, <laughs> you know, in the the sort of the the aughts and the teens leading up. Well, we've had an 80s retro thing happen. I mean, so yes, True. we've seen some of the fashions come back, some of the color palettes. Definitely, no question about that. Yeah, I, I think that's right, yeah. Right, but in terms of um, you know how grunge came in, it is on the it's 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 a uh, mysterious why as soon as you know the, when everything got better, we all of a sudden decided we were miserable. Right, right. <laughs> one of the one of the early VJs, um, I think one of the original VJs, um, video jockeys, uh, Martha Quinn. Yeah, please please uh, talk I, about this because you mentioned this in our pre-discussion. So, right, so. Um, she has a theory about this that, you know, the the weight of the Cold War was definitive and incredibly influential on the aesthetics and the mood of the mainstream entertainment of the 80s. And so you have just the, you know, the borderline frivolity of the Go-Go's. I love the Go-Go's. I'm just saying, you know, relative to grunge that came after uh, Martha Quinn, um, you know, to paraphrase, I think she was saying that this was sort of this sort of pop, ha you know, happy frivolity was, um, you know, almost therapy. A coping. It was co it was the opposite aesthetic that you would expect because it was people an expression of people coping with a sort of existential terror of imminent thermonuclear war. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, whether we're sort of justified in believing that's less of a threat now. In any case, we did think it was more of a threat in the 80s. I remember my dad was an Air Force officer, so I just sort of imbibed, you know, um, as a kid that this was a very serious, weighty thing. You know, you have- What, a, what having 3,000 ICBMs pointed at you is, is scary? <laughs> yeah, so I think there was a movie, I don't remember what the name of it the was. The day after, the day after? There you go. Do you remember and, when that when that landed? Yes, I remember that. Just the you know the ad that was a, a you know a dad and his daughter in Iowa or Kansas or what have you, and the, just the the bright light of the you know the nuclear explosion and and they had a visual effect of actually like an X ray coming over the people, so where it looked like they just like you'd all of a sudden see their skeleton outlined in gray, and then they would just be evaporated, right? I mean, it was just terrifying you know when right. that hit the next day in school you could hear a pin drop in the school really it scared it scared us all half to death you have wow. to remember we had nuclear raid drills oh yeah we had new you'd go into the gym 
And I remember us having conversations. How long can you stay in a gym? The fallout's going to last 300 years. Like, what the hell is the point of putting us in this fucking gym? All it was is to remind you <laughs> how totally fucked you were, right? I mean, this isn't global warming. It might get a little hotter. You know, this place might be underwater. This was everyone will be incinerated in five minutes, right? <laughs> it was absolutely terrifying. But you know what? We didn't all become, you know, we didn't all just turn into Nirvana fans. You know, we didn't all just say, oh, God, my life is so miserable. I'm going to go sit here and whine and whinge and whimper about how miserable it is and, and have this fault, phony posturing of strength and all this kind of crap. I don't know. I just we, we listened to the Go-Go's. <laughs> we got the beat, man. Well, <laughs> that's right. So I, I, I don't want to, um, you know, I don't know what Martha Quinn would say, but, uh, you know, I can't say that the causation that started sort of, um, you know, the, the artists in the Pacific Northwest to start the genre we now call um, grunge was influenced by the Cold War, but perhaps on the, the end of receptivity you know, what the culture was ready for, you know, um, that when the Cold War ended and when the weight was lifted, mm. then Martha Quinn, her, her theory, which I think is very plausible and attractive, that that was the, um, you know, that was the atmosphere that was ripe for grunge. I also think, though, that, um, and many people have said this, that, you know, whether you're a fan of grunge or not, and I, I know that, um, you know, from the conversation so far that you're not, uh, blown away. I'm sort of in the middle on on grunge, but I feel I do feel like somehow the the magic of the early '80s had really started to peter out by the late '80s, particularly not only in pop music. You know, you've got the Go Go's at one end and like Roxette on the other. Uh, you know, no offense to Roxette fans, but you've got the you know you have got the hair metal at the tail end of the 80s, getting sort of more and more sort of pop and yeah, it got more and more ridiculous, more and more glam. You know, Motley Crue gives, you know, Motley Crue, who actually was a really tough band, right? I mean, these are these are dirt bags, right? I mean, real like like they weren't it wasn't what they were saying was not bullshit. Like that was the real deal. Right. Turns into poison, which is not serious. Yeah. So there's a superficial similarity. That's just completely, you know, fluff, right? It's it's fluff. But yeah. you know, the thing about Quinn's thesis, I think actually, you know, I, I'm not arguing against it. I actually think it makes perfect sense, but I think it has to be seen through a non-rational lens. And so the way I liken it is as someone who has suffered from anxiety attacks, you don't have the anxiety attack when you're in the middle of the shit. You have it when you're in the calm moment several hours later. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah. I do think that, and I thought you said something similar when we had our pre-discussion about Quinn's piece, that there was something of it sort of like, while it's going on, you're trying to cheer yourself up. Right. When it's over is when you crash. Right. So it makes perfect sense yeah. that the depression would come after. Right. That the culture is just like now that the, the threat is over and we're no longer kind of dancing in the ruins in our mind. Now the full weight of it's landing on us, right? It's like, okay. Right. Maybe now you can actually express, right? you know, some of the right. tension that right. you've felt. And in. you did have a mini economic crash in the late 80s. Nothing like 2008, but a pretty substantial one. 
And I think that the kind of psychological narrative that now is universal amongst young people was starting then of a diminished fortunes for our generation going on from that of the post-World War II generations. I do think there was the start of that that also explains some of the depressive aesthetic of, of the 90s. Um, I, I also think, though, that it really does, if, you, if I found at least, the younger Gen Xers tend to like the grunge better <laughs> and the older Gen Xers tend to like it less. Um, um, and that's simply, I think, may also makes perfect sense. Because right. of 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 when you experience, right? You know, my memories still very actively include v the Vietnam War mm. and its aftermath, and Nixon and aftermath, and the sort of the, the malaise of Carter, the generally depressed sensibility to the seventies. I remember very well, and. I just was not going to go back to it. I, I never liked it. I never, I never, I never found rewarding or soothing the kind of pose of beleagueredness. I never found that a liberating. And I, but I think for a lot of people it is right. You know, the more I can pose as a beleaguered soul, the more I can adorn myself as an oppressed person is a kind of a relief to whatever, unhappiness i'm experiencing i just never felt that way and it's just because i had my fill of that sensibility throughout the 70s the whole 70s was like that despite the fact that it was also the greatest era for rock music ever right um but the whole the whole generation for the whole decade felt like that i remembered it i felt it and i didn't want any more of it and so certainly in my 20s i wasn't going to go back to it um, um, but I think it makes sense psychologically. I understand why it happened, but it's not a rational thing. I think it's more like the way that these dynamics go with things like depression and anxiety when you've been through a very, very ex excruciating experience. Oftentimes you handle it pretty well while it's happening. It's afterwards that you fall apart, right? Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's the aftermath where you really have to process it. Yeah. I have a memory of the seventies, mostly, uh, you know, in hindsight, I was, you know, six, I think when it, in 1980, but, uh, for some reason, the, the opening of welcome back Cotter sticks in my head, you know, the sort of industrial, yeah. um, scene there. Um, and I remember being sort of all the footage being very dreary. I would just say that maybe, um, you know, grunge served the purpose of, sort of cleansing the earth of the uh, the wingers. I think somebody said, you know, uh, the wingers and the warrants are why you had the Pearl Jams and Nirvana. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, but I do think that maybe um, we got out of that, um, you know, maybe by the late 90s and early aughts, you know, uh, there was some residual, um, you know, 90s stuff. And then, like you said, we had the 80s resurgence. And of course, now it's tough to say what- Now everything is a free, everything's a free floating signifier now. There are no dominant, right. you know, um, other than, you know, political things like, you know, anti-racism or, you know, right. this gender stuff, I think is very popular amongst young people now. If there's anything that you around which you might say there's something resembling a national consensus, it might be around those things, but certainly not around aesthetics, not around taste, 
not around the kinds of things that um, that that were very much what the glue. I feel more like politics ties the youth culture to youth together today more than pop culture does even more than it did in the 60s because sure the 60s young people were very much connected politically but geez were they connected pop culturally i mean they were connected through through music that became not just youth music it became ubiquitous music i mean that's the other thing that people don't sort of really understand there is no pop music anymore if what you mean is music at the scale of of effect and popularity and influence as the rolling stones or the beatles or there just isn't right. There's just, and there won't ever be again because the youth, youth are too fragmentary, too fragmented. And the nature of the business is such that the people running these companies are no longer music people. They're Viacom or telecommunications companies, people who don't have any interest in and could care less about, could care less about music. Um, so I, you know, I think people also forget, you know, there are no albums now that are going to sell like Dark Side of the Moon. There just aren't, right? Right. Uh, they're just not. I mean, or or like Thriller. Or like or like half the Madonna albums. I mean, they're just not going to have that impact. Or the police synchronicity, right? I mean, you're just not going to have things because of the nature of the business and also because of the nature of, of, of youth. It's too it's too atomized, it seems to me. Right. I, you know, so what is the conversation that, you know, two people will have in, you know, 20, 30, 40 years <laughs> that's analogous to this one? Or, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, unless they're a part of the same exact niche community, you know, there, there is a lot of, um, you know, we grew up in very different regions and parts of the country, but we we're both sort of suburban Gen X kids consuming the, the mainstream cultural entertainment. And so we have, uh, you know, a very common um, sensibility because of that. Yeah. And you can still have that now, but it's like you have to be in the same little, uh, you know, we're a furry or we play this same video game or something like you that. Only, what we used to have nationally mm -hmm. and even to a certain extent globally, you now only have as a young person within a very small clique Right. And um, that's the sense, you know, I realize I, I never said what actually I meant when I said it was the end of something, right? All right. For me, MTV was like a national radio station, right? So, so growing up in the 70s, I got this tremendous musical education from the radio. And there were mainstream popular rock radio stations with legendary DJs. And these were in particular markets. So there was in New York and there was in Los Angeles. And I'm sure there was where you were too back in the seventies. And if you were in a small town, the one you were listening to was coming from whatever the largest city nearby was. Right. Um, and um, what that meant was, was that if you were a regular radio listener in the 1970s, you were hearing music that crossed probably three decades. Mm -hmm. You'd hear all the stuff that was coming out in the 70s. You would hear a shit ton of 60s music. And you would also even hear 50s music in regular rotation as part of the mainstream programming. So your average radio listening kid in the 70s had 30 years of musical experience. Today, it seems to me, kids, unless they're, debut unless they're, unless they're enthusiasts, 
have a musical experience that's about five minutes old. <laughs> Um, they, 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 and so, and so the, the, their, the way they consume music and, and the very limited scope of what they consume, actually, despite the fact that everything is available, they have a much narrower music or palette and a much narrower uh, uh, musical education in terms of their experience. So now MTV basically did this but on a national scale and even an international scale, meaning it wasn't just your local affiliate and the famous DJ, the local, the, the radio station that you listen to in your area with the famous DJ. These were now, these DJs or VJs were now national figures, meaning you in the sticks and me in the, in the tri-state area um, are, are watching the same people right. and hearing the same music. And the music was very eclectic. Now you you and I spoke privately about, and I want you to speak to this after I'm done with this little this little speech. But about David Bowie's interview where he complained about the lack of black music and so on and so forth on MTV. But blocking that for a minute because I want you to talk about that. Even early on, MTV was damn eclectic. I mean, even the bands you just mentioned, the fact that you would have on the same channel this wouldn't even happen on the radio. You would have on the same channel the Buggles, Video Killed the Radio Star. Motley Crue, Shout at the Devil, The Human League, Keep Feeling Fascination, right? All of that on the same channel? Are you kidding me? Judas Priest and The Human League on the same channel, right? Duran Duran and Quiet Riot on the same channel? Right, this this simply... This so what what MTV did was what, what radio stations were already kind of doing, but even more so, even more eclectic and on a much huger scope. And everyone our age was watching it, it was the cool thing to watch, right? And so, you just got this incredibly eclectic musical, you know, musical taste. And then later, the show even made itself more eclectic by adding specialty shows that address things that were not on the channel. So to me, it represents the end of something in that it was the last time there was a wide scale, large effort, entertainment effort that could appeal to everyone. Every type of musical taste was ubiquitous that never happened again and it never had happened before at that scale. That's my impression. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I haven't, you know, I, I haven't thought about it like that before, but I think that um, there's probably a story to tell about a lot of other things as well, that is similar in terms of the fragmentation of the market, you know, in that we had one market at least quasi-universalized market that everyone could participate in. We all have very similar cultural memories from that time period. Um, and now, of course, it's not only, um, you know, sort of entertainment markets, it's news itself, you know, which is in incredibly fragmented. And uh, so back then, it feels like um, the fact that the social fabric was not yet torn the way it is now is related to the fact that we were all consuming the same, not only news, but the same 
um, you know, music and music entertainment. Yeah, and certainly um, for young people, right? I mean, I mean, right. you know, now young people are so atomized. Right. And this is another thing. I mean, I, I, I really do. I think we underestimate how important these kinds of unifying cultural um, institutions are, um, because young people really don't have much power other than through sort of cultural institutions, right? I mean, this is the other thing that I wanted to say about what it's, it was the end of, it was the end of dominant powerful youth culture, right? I mean, from the sixties up through the eighties, you saw a steady increase in the social capital of young people. And I mean, you know, high schoolers and early 20 somethings, right? You went from, you know, some popular movies in the 60s that, you know, um, uh, in early 70s that were directed towards youth audience. I'm thinking about, you know, Animal House and stuff like that. You know, you went from popular teen idols, you know, being on the covers of teen magazine, you know, Leif Garrett on the cover of Tiger Beat magazine or whatever, right? But in the 80s, Molly Ringwald's on the cover of Time magazine, right? Right. America's Sweetheart, right? Um, you know, the 80s was the last time that young people and was the time when young people had the most social capital they, they had ever had and would ever have again. It was youth fashions that were dominant, not just among young people, but everyone. It was the beginning of older people trying desperately to look like young people. My mother never tried to look like a 16-year-old. But starting then, that's when they started. Why? Because of the, the social capital of these actors and, and such and these fashions were so huge. And why? It was because of MTV. It was the intersection of MTV movies and television that I talked about earlier. And it was this unified national youth culture behind it. Right. That could have that sort of impact. And the story since then has been the declining impact and influence of young people. And I don't think it's an accident that it peaked when young people had their largest media platform. Right? Mm -hmm. And it started to slide as that platform transformed itself into something else. And, um, you know, I think young people are the most powerless they've been in my memory. And that the kind of the shrill characteristic of of youth politics today is that they know they're completely impotent. Right. OK, Boomer. OK, Boomer is a cry of impotence. That's <laughs> I know I don't have any power. So all I can do is try to annoy you like a seven year old used to say, I know you are. But what am I? Um, this is just their version of I know you are. Right? What am I? The difference is they're not seven. They're 25 or 30. And they're doing this. And it's because they're completely disempowered. They have no real stake in the economy. Right. And no real power in it. And um, they just look in the future and they don't see it getting any better. And they're disconnected from each other. Right. And I, I think this is actually very dangerous. I think it's going to give us more, actually more reactionary politics. I, I think a lot of the progressive stuff we're seeing is a lot of fireworks. But I don't think it's an accident that, you know, everybody woke up and Donald Trump won. <laughs> um, that wasn't an accident. I, I was one of the few people that was predicting it six months before that he was going to win. Wow. Um, because I could tell that all the noise against him was just noise. It didn't have any bottom, right? It had no 
muscle. Um, so I think that the loss of national unifying youth culture actually um, strips youth of any efficacy, right? In, 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 in the society, right? Um, at least that's my, that's, so that's the other thing about it. It was the end and represented the peak of youth social capital in this country. Right. And it's, um, it's not something you hear every day, particularly from, you know, I would have expected you, um, you know, who I think does, um, you know, you do find yourself quite annoyed with, you know, you mentioned, okay, boomer, or you might, you might want to say cancel culture or whatever the yeah. term, whatever the best term is, you know, as am I. Um, and a lot of times when people are coming from that perspective, they, they say that young people have too much power, <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, so. too much say, and that's the source of the problem. Whereas you're saying there is a problem, but it's definitely not that young people have too much power. It's quite, no, I think they have none. And so they're reduced to these sorts of performative, um, you know, these sort of performative, you know, listen, look, basically in the sixties, the youth were actually protesting against the stuff that was being directed directly against to hurt them. Right. I mean, they were protesting the Vietnam war, which they were being drafted to go fight in. Right. They were protesting civil rights where they were being actually, you know, hung, strung up alongside the people whose civil rights they were fighting on behalf of thinking about the freedom summer. Right. Right. Um, being shot, literally gunned down by National Guardsmen on a college campus, talking about M. Kent State. To worse now, it feels to me like the um, what they should be protesting against is is what they're embracing, right? So, the, what what is it that's destroying their future? I mean, what's destroying their future materially is the 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 complete devastation of local economies, and what's causing that? Well, what's causing that are Tech companies, right? You know, Google and Amazon and all of these things, right? I mean, they're the ones destroying this, right? And what do those tech companies then do? They create artificial spaces, virtual spaces, for the young people to then go and scream and yell in while they consider continue to erase all the jobs in their local communities, right? Destroy right. all the retail districts. And they've got these poor young people in some virtual space screaming about the racial composition of the Marvel team of the, of, in the latest Marvel movie. Right? right. And you ask yourself, is that, is that, is that the behavior of impotent people or is that the behavior of people who are really empowered and are fighting the struggles of their day? And my answer is it's obviously the first, right? I mean, yeah, young people have been completely conned into thinking that they're engaged in activism. They're not engaged in activism. They're playing the game that the tech companies want them to play while they destroy their economies, right? <laughs> right, and, it, and it's a pretty good trick, you know, you gotta admit, because, you know, if the, you know, the people complaining about the racial composition of the Marvel movies can get 10,000 retweets and 40,000 likes, you know, it seems like they're right. making right, it- But then when you try to get a job in your town, you're 25 years old and the best you can get is to be a fucking barista. Right, right. Right? Why is that? Amazon. Amazon. It's a horrible <laughs> irony. And yeah. 50 other things. So, you know, I mean, I, I, 
I'm not angry at young people. I think they're pathetic and they're pathetic because of what we've done to them. That's another thing. They're not pathetic because of anything they've done. They're pathetic because we stripped them. Right? We, we, we strip mind them. If you want you, if you want to call it that. Right. And I do think that this popular culture thing is very important. The way that youth have always expressed and exercised power is through cultural influence because they don't have money. <laughs> they don't have the other ways. They, they don't yet have political power, at least not until they're 18. And even then, if you look at voting numbers, their voting numbers are always low compared to everybody else's, right? For obvious reasons. Because right. young people are self-absorbed as they should be, right? Um, that's the other thing is, you know, kitty charity just drives me insane. You want to talk about a sucker's game convince people who haven't gotten anything yet that what they need to spend all their time doing is giving back. You can't give back something you haven't gotten yet. You dumb fuck. Right. <laughs> right. So, right. I mean, you know, of course they're supposed to be selfish, but what's not supposed to happen is we're not supposed to prey on their selfishness and lock them into virtual spaces while we then go pillage everything. Right. And these poor jerks are yelling, okay, boomer. And in, in what in the current version of a chat room, right? Right. Um, um, you know, I mean, and I do really think that, look, this isn't a plot, but I don't, I think in previous eras, if you tried to do this, youth could have at least fought back in a much larger scale, unified way that they're now simply not able to do their, their, their social cultural capital is so low, right. That they really can. And they're so fragmented that they really can't do anything. Right. I mean, the MTV generation, you could change how everybody dressed in a week, in a week. Right. And right. so what is one of the things that a generation would need? Obviously the a necessary condition is this, uh, you know, somewhat universalizable. There can still be some variety, but it, somewhat universalizable, sensibility is it a vernacular or something it's a, the, the we don't have to like fight i think it's tropes dress uh music even down to things like color palette and all these things have tremendously strong psychological effects you know how you view things you know th just what you were saying before about the color palette of the 80s versus the earlier generation i mean it's striking right your whole right. the way you think changes when you, so you know there's a lot of um, power and impact in things that strike us as being completely uh, superficial, right? But they, they, they I, I think that that youth had a way to to influence adult culture through their pop cultural institutions, whether it's music, the music industry, MTV, film, television, um, you know, and it just, it just. Um, I think without it, because young people by definition almost don't yet have money and political influence. If you don't have that it, either, it means you've got no influence, it seems to me. Right. Um, and Isn't um, there another version of this, you were um, another manifestation of this larger um, issue that um, you believe that the, the 80s represented the last um, end of so, something yeah yeah the movie right the end of something in general but also another example of it was uh, if I recall correctly the last sort of teen mainstream teen idol movie star or something that could be that was that know, became not just a teen idol but a general movie star 
Right. So this is again about the, the sort of brat pack on the cover of Time magazine and what have you. And that has a lot to do with the material, uh, you know, arrangement of the market. Um, you know, it also occurs to me that, and I'm sure these are intertwined, but, you know, post 80s up until today, you know, a person is able to extend their adolescence well into their 20s, perhaps even their 30s. And so we do have young stars who are quite famous and successful, Timothy Chamelet or something, but they're not sort of the representation of a, of a certain... Uh, well, they're not 16 years old. Oh, right, right, right. I mean, I mean, I mean, you have to remember, Brooke Shields was the number one sex symbol in the country as a teenager because of those Calvin Klein ads. Right. That simply does not happen anymore. Right. I mean, it's, and I don't see how it could. Right. right. Um, um, uh, you know, things have just kind of really changed so much um, in terms of, you know, the, the fragmentation of media um, and um, the fragmentation of audiences. Look, people don't, I tell, when I tell my students, and I want to check this number because I want to make sure I'm getting it right. Um, um, all right. Um, I tell my students that 106 million people watch the last episode of MASH and they don't believe me. Really? <laughs> like people today don't even know what the word popular means is what I'm saying, right? Mm-hmm. 105 106 million people you could put together the 10 most popular shows and they're not even close right i mean in terms right. of the viewership right i mean you've got you've got dc property shows now i mean you know major properties you know the batwoman or whatever right they're lucky if they get 200,000 people watching right <laughs> Yeah. You know, regularly people, you know how many people were watching Miami Vice every week? And the songs on it were playing on MTV with video from the show in the video. Well, in Tubbs, was it Tubbs? He was a pop star himself. You Tubbs, know? Cro- oh no, uh, Don Johnson. Don yeah. Johnson as well, yeah. right? Had hits, yeah, had, had hits, regardless of what they were worth. But my point just is, is that this was all intertwined hugely popular and i do think that that's empowering for young people in a way i I think that the consequence of having it turns out that everything always a la carte is actually really bad right Mm -hmm. it means that there's never anything that's big enough to have any influence or impact on anything to ever draw a large enough audience as to constitute any kind of a movement right you're going to get a movement out of, out of the, out of, out of this, right? How are you going to get a movement out of Beyonce? You get a movement out of Rolling Stones and, 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 and the Beatles. You can't get a movement out of Beyonce. Right. Um, um, and that's just simply because of scope and scale and breadth and audience. And I would also say quality, but that's just, you know, going to get everybody all upset and sub- it's subjective and whatever. I also do think that this does mark a, a demonstrable decline in quality. Um, yeah. um, um, I think you're know. probably right. It's not so much people say 
music was so much better then. It's just that it was easy. The, the sort of like default music was so much well, better. It's that the better music became popular. And today the yeah. better music is niche and obscure. Right. Um, um, and I do think that that, that, that that also does have an effect on objective quality because it matters whether you have label support, whether you have money, whether you have promotion, that stuff matters to the quality of the product. And I don't know if a band today, a niche band on the side can make as many great albums as the Rolling Stones made or make albums like Tommy or Quadrophenia. I just don't know if they can. I just don't know if that's possible. Uh, I feel the same way about film and television, right? You do need real production. And if the only thing that's going to get production money and value and marketing and all of that is going to be Marvel movies, then you can just kiss cinema goodbye, right? There aren't going to be any more Godfathers. You know, now when Martin Scorsese makes a movie, he goes direct to Netflix. Right. Like The Irishman, right? Right, um, which I loved, but it's not going to have It's great, but it's not going to have the impact of Goodfellas. It just won't. Right. Like, ever, ever. Um, and so, you know, I, I do really think MTV does represent the end of something. And what I dislike is that people are just acting as if the change has been an obviously good thing, that more is always better, that a la carte is better than, than curated, that all this, and I just don't think any of that's true. And I think if you even just spend 30 seconds reflecting, comparing then to now, it would be obvious to you that it's not true, right? Um, but I think that people have been so seduced by the tech. The tech companies have done an amazing job of turning everyone into a mentally ill narcissist, right? They've done an amazing job of convincing everyone that where they are right now is the best it's ever been. And for those people whose memory lasts and stretches, it's so obviously false, right? right. I mean, to say that Beyonce is at the same level of quality of music as the Rolling Stones or the police is not just stupid. It's, it's, it demonstrates that you don't know anything about the history of music, right? Um, or I've never listened to the history of music or you're just being dishonest and you're trying to play a game of, well, what's today is better because I can't possibly ever say that anything my parents did was better than I did. <laughs> uh, I understand when 16 year olds act that way. Again, I don't understand when 30 year olds act that way. And more and more, this is how, you know, this is how the millennials are acting. And um, I just don't have any patience for it. I mean, if you remember it, you know what you're saying is not true. Right. You just right. know it's, you know, it isn't right. You know, that latest auto tune hit is not better than synchronicity. You know that. All right. Absolutely. And either you're lying or you're playing a game or I don't know what it is, but, but, you know, it just, it just is not, it's really not contestable as far as I'm concerned. Um, so, what, what about you, this thing with, with Bowie? Talk a little bit about, I, I don't, I don't want to get too much longer cause we're going long, but just talk okay. a little bit about the Bowie thing. And let's, let's finish with, with how MTV sort of ended up. Yeah. So, um, you mentioned, uh, <coughs> video killed the radio star earlier. Incidentally, the first the video played on MTV ever, which is, uh, uh of course, you know, going to be the 40th anniversary of in August. Um, but uh, I, you know, like I said earlier, I sort of imbibed that there was a specialized music channel and and everyone was saying it, they only play music and that was such a novelty. Um, but Michael Jackson really, you know, drew me in. And so at the time, this was just the background. I thought it was how 
it was. I was watching, you know, Michael Jackson videos and Duran Duran videos, but uh, apparently MTV, when they started, um, conceived of themselves as what they would call a rock channel, you know? And so I think this was probably borrowed straight from radio, um, you know, sort of album oriented rock. And it, you know, when you watch some of the very early, uh, yeah, you some know, of the earliest videos are from Rush's moving pictures. Um, yeah. um, uh, Red Barchetta, Limelight, Tom Sawyer, um, even though that album, I think, predates MTV by a year. But I remember some of the first round videos were from Asia. Um, right. um, and those are all rock bands. Right. Um, uh, right. And then even, you know, Fleetwood Mac, uh, Tom Petty. Yeah. You know, um, and it was just literally them performing on stage. Yeah. That was the video, <laughs> you know, and I want to say, I don't know if this is related, but when people say even like the British New Wave, sort of the pop version of that had the, the second British invasion was really given a boost by MTV that it might not have huge boost, huge boost. otherwise, in, yes. including, including later on, which will circle back to the David Bowie issue, but yo MTV raps, um, you know, uh, you know, hair metal and so forth. But apparently, although I didn't know this was going on at the time, um, you know, MTV was receiving a lot of criticism uh, in the first couple of years for uh, playing, uh, you know, an insufficient amount of black artists. And their uh, retort was, well, we're a, we're a rock station, you know, and there aren't, this is a genre that is currently populated mostly by, right. you know, white people. And uh, there was even some, you know, maybe behind the scenes negotiation or hesitation about sort of Billie Jean and sort of the, the early, you know, Michael Jackson videos. I think eventually it became too obvious that, you know, Michael Jackson is not someone you want to deny, <laughs> you know, your Prince. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but Purple Rain was huge. Right. And was all over MTV. But I even remember the earlier songs from 1999 on MTV. I remember um, um, 1999 and Little Red Corvette were in constant rotation. Was it Bowie, though, who actually confronted one of the VJs on this? Right. Yes, I think it was, uh, if I recall correctly, Mark Goodman, one of the early lineup of a handful, along with Martha Quinn and several others, original MTV VJs. And he uh, very pointedly sort of, um, you know, requested an answer from Goodman, who was interviewing him. I think it was Mark Goodman. Um, and Mark Goodman, um, you know, was sort of in a no-win situation. Right, because it's not like he makes the programming. It's so. not. Exactly. And so he, you know, went through the typical spiel of where well, we're a rock station, we're working on correcting that, so on and so forth. Um, you know, I do think that in one, you know, there may be a disparate impact on black artists, but it does seem plausible that their, their own sincere um, opinion of their sort of demographic audience was that they wanted to hear rock of course they eventually realized that um they didn't have to rely on that so exclusively but um there is a, a video it's sort of the most confrontational video uh with an mtv vj that i've been able to hunt down um and uh you know he sort of holds goodman's feet to the fire goodman fumbles around for an answer and then uh, bowie at the end he could have sort of let it go but he 
you know, he said, don't say it's, it's just, don't say it's you, you know, don't say it's them. It's not you. You know, you're the one here talking to me right now. Do you, know, do you remember what year that was? Well, I want to say it was 1983, but it might've been 1982. But the, I mean, I think it's interesting in hindsight, because if you're talking about thriller and then you're talking about Prince and Lionel Richie and, uh, you know, even Eddie Murphy had a video in 1984. Eventually you've got UMTV raps. You're only talking about two years tops at the very beginning of MTV. Yeah, because I was going to say, I just looked this up. Those Prince videos dropped in 84. Okay. That's just three years after MTV started. So I'm saying if that interview with Bowie was after, it's pretty unfair. Um, if it's if it's earlier, then I think it's fair. But I think that, you know, MTV did pretty quickly <clears throat> start bringing in some huge black artists that had, you know, multi, multi-platinum hits, videos in constant rotation. And then in 1987, is when Yo MTV Raps launched. I looked this up. And then the floodgates were open. But I mean, come on. That Run DMC video with Aerosmith oh. uh, of Walk This Way was in constant rotation. That was ubiquitous. It was Indeed, all the Run DMC. Run DMC was all over MTV. Um, yeah. and, um, and even much tougher stuff like Public Enemy, right? And that's another thing you got to say about MTV. They were not, they weren't, they, they had no problem publishing, broadcasting stuff that was extremely oppositional. I mean, really radical, right? Public Enemy was radical. Sure. <clears throat> was a police officer in the scope of a, you know, a, a, I mean, a really car. radical. Um, um, right. And, so, yeah. Um, yeah. I think in the early years, you know, I, I, I did <laughs> interviews where I think it was Miles Davis even sort of putting pressure on MTV. I don't want to watch that. They don't have black artists on. Um, you know, I assumed that the David Bowie interview was leading up to the change. And I think, um, you know, he was, you know, he obviously seemed sincerely motivated by the question. Mark Goodman, though, was just trying to get out of the interview in one piece. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and 87 was also when they launched Headbangers Ball. Um, and that was the other thing I was just going to say from before, and then we should probably wrap up just because we've got a long time. Nothing right. preventing us from having another one. Um, <clears throat> you know, what you were saying about grunge and about, you know, that it was sort of a, an antidote to all of this fluffy hair metal and, and buoyant sort of stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's important to remember <laughs> that you know, grunge is pretty late to that game. I mean, you already had, you know, thrash metal. <laughs> Metallica's first album, you're talking 19, and Slayer's first albums, you're talking 1983, right? So the idea that, you know, oh, everything was fluffy and positive until, you know, poor Pert, Kurt Cobain brought his heroin habit to them to America is just false, right? I mean, it's just wrong. Um, in addition to thrash metal you had the entire palm desert scene down in southern california which in my view is way better than any of the grunge bands i'm talking about bands like caius that then gave rise to, to queens of the stone age and other um bands from the from the desert in the southern california not hollywood but down in the desert the difference was that it never got nut stuff never went mainstream thrash metal only wound up going mainstream way later Metallica only gets mainstream by like 91 with the Black Album, with Enter Sandman and all of that. 
thrash was niche um palm desert was even more niche <clears throat> nirvana was the first time it became mainstream that dark heavy music became mainstream after 20 years 10 years of 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 you know i'm just rocking for a good time and um, so I, I think that, you know, despite the fact that the darkness starts way earlier, it doesn't become mainstream in, in terms of until until grunge. And, and that makes perfect sense. But I also think it's interesting that 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 MTV added these genre programs. Because once they add those, you really MTV could be the most comprehensive, most eclectic, most broad based uh, station ever to air in the United States on radio or um, and that's, I think, to its credit. I mean, that's something that never was before, and I don't think it'll ever happen again. But rap fans and thrash metal fans and pop fans and Madonna fans all watching the same station, that's a good thing, right? It seems to Definitely. Me. Definitely. And I remember the, particularly the specialized shows, I think they both came on on Saturday Night Live, butted up against one another, Yo! MTV Raps. And Were they at the same slot? Well, the same, um, if I recall correctly, Young TV Raps might have been first and Headbangers Ball after or the reverse. They, they were, um, you know, next to one another in the lineup. And uh, I watched a little Young TV Raps. Of course, it was, uh, I think, very East Coast based, which, of course, was appropriate with the develop, you know, the original development of rap music. And I also remember my uh, sister's boyfriend, now my brother-in-law, watching MTV with me, uh, uh, you know, what was it, Saturday night at 1030, uh, Headbangers Ball, every Saturday night. And I remember, you know, you talk about the thrash metal, you talk about the hard stuff, which existed, but didn't scale the way that grunge did. Grunge is, you know, maybe replacing, I don't know, Men at Work or something, <laughs> you know. Um, it's replacing Poison. <clears throat> and guns go. and roses and 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 rat and it was replacing that in the terms of it was cleansing sort of cleansing the earth with it but in terms of how it scaled mm. you know it scaled as big as the pop band yeah. In the, yeah the early 90s but i remember there being this divide within headbangers ball and you know people that would go to these concerts and used there was this um tour called the monsters of rock <clears throat> that you might remember and they had both sort of the candy metal band yeah, guns and roses with metallica right and, and i want to say faith no more which by the way i was going to just give a special shout out yeah. faith no more is the only great band of the 1990s and notice something they're undefinable right interesting uh -huh. I mean, what the hell are they i mean i mean you know they're they're they are and that's because you know there's some serious geniuses in that band including mike Patton, the singer um but um no no you you, you know you're you're right about about i remember the time and i remember how grunge was received and i remember why and it does make sense um um i think also you have to remember it came after Penelope Spears part two of her decline of Western civilization, which was the metal years, which really, really, really made the hair metal guys look bad. Mm. Like they came out. I mean, the taste you were left with in your mouth after that for hair metal was just God awful. Right. And so um, um, even though it also did represent how hardworking these bands were at the beginning and how hard it was to make it and that they were all for the most part, real bands. Um, sure. But um, um, 
it left us such a poor taste and summarized the whole thing in such a gross way that everybody was just like, Ugh, you know, just, just give me anything that's the opposite of this. Right. And it was the kind of earnestness and lack of pretense in the, in the grunge music, I think that um, was what was so appealing about it as well as the sonic. It was crunchy and heavy, but it didn't force you to sort of endure all sorts of what looked increasingly like sort of disingenuous kind of, you know, performances um um, right. um so um but anyway um we should probably stop this as much as i could go on since it's now almost two hours yeah. jay jeffers thank you very much <clears throat> i hope we'll do this again on other topics and um i look forward to seeing you around thanks a lot dan i had a hell of a time talking to you all right take care my friend all right you too bye-bye